0: another episode of Bumper Sticker Faith. I'm your boy, Louis Dooley. I got my man, Sam, key on the ones and twos over here. You know what the ones and twos are?
1: Yeah, like record players?
0: Yeah, the ones and twos, like <laughs> scratching and mixing and stuff, man. All okay, right. I ain't know if you would know that All right, It's
1: not like, some people think like the digital code, or that's ones and zeros.
0: Yeah, is that, okay. it's like the yeah, binary stuff know. or something, I don't, I don't know, I'm not a numbers guy, but we got Sam, Key, what's up, how you doing yeah,
1: brother? Good, first t-shirt day of the year for us here.
0: Yeah man, but I'm a little chilly down here in this basement, <laughs> I'm about to wear my coat next time. Yeah. But man, we got a guest today man, we got a special guest we that's do. special to me, just really for one reason, it's pretty superficial, <laughs> but we got the same first name, so that's dope. <laughs> I, that's dope.
1: I'm in double double Lewis territory here. Double, I don't know if you right. have ever been here before. Don't get out of
0: line, boy. We put a lot of Lewis <laughs> on you.
1: <laughs> so we have uh, Lewis Dooley here, but we have uh, Doctor Lewis Marcos here, who we'll probably call Lou throughout this episode. All right, to keep it to keep it clear. So welcome, welcome to Bumper Podcast. Hey, it's Super good Faith to be on, Podcast.
2: gentlemen. It's good to be on. It's a lot hotter here in Houston. I'll tell you that. Man, <laughs> I like the heat. Man, I wish I was down there with you. Well, see, what happened? I like the, Everything's air conditioned down here. Everything is overly air conditioned. Okay. You have to bring a jacket wherever you can go. Wow. Okay. Huh. Well,
1: um, I'll tell you what happened to me uh, where that put Dr. Marcos in my mind. Okay. 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 What happened to you? So um, I was taking my son to college. Okay. No, no, not taking him. I was picking him up from college. Okay. And I had always, not always, but for the last few months, been wanting to read uh, Boethius's Consolation of Philosophy, this book that C.S. Lewis loved, and mm. he said he like ranked it in his top, I don't know, seven or eight books of his life. Mm, okay. And I had been wanting to read it, wanting to read it, and um, tried to find a copy. Our stinking library didn't didn't even have it. But I found a digital copy with, that I could listen to an audio book online, and so I thought I'll just listen to it as I drive to go get my son. And you know, here I'm driving along, starting to listen to this thing, blew me away. Really, this this old book written by this guy in like I don't know the four or five hundreds blew me away, and like I couldn't I couldn't stop thinking about it. And the whole way there, the whole way back, I'm like. I needed to learn more about this. Did you even pick your son up from school? Oh darn it! I knew I forgot something. <laughs> okay. Right. So I, I thought, who who can I talk to about this? And I started uh, looking up Boethius biographies or anything about, and they're so scant. Like I I I couldn't even find like a really a good one out there that mm-hmm. that, that was accessible or a person attached to it. Uh, but then I remembered. Dr. Louis Marcos. I remember listening to, I don't know, something where he referred to to him. And it turns out in his latest uh, book from, uh, what's it called? From Plato to Christ. That book, which I read, maybe that was in my psyche. There is a chapter that mentions Boethius. So I thought uh, the connections were being made in my head. And so I reached out to him and I said, hey, would, would you like to come on our podcast and talk? about this amazing work and maybe introduce people to it. But then the more I got into it and got into uh, the work and, and, and I read a chapter that uh, you wrote for um, the Ignatius uh, press.
2: Um, right. It's a critical edition, critical, critical edition. edition means you have a new edition. You have lots of notes and then you get a lot of different scholars to write essays all together. Okay. Uh, and I particularly like Ignatius because most of the ones they use in academia, uh, they have a great work. And then the essays in the back are basically deconstructing the great work, yeah. Marxism, feminism, all this, where Ignatius, uh, you know, critical editions, they're actually, they actually like the work yeah. <laughs> and they're trying to open it up rather than deconstruct it. So mm. all of their series are good. Ignatius have ice for sure. So
1: I read, I read that your chapter and it was fantastic and just continue to be thinking about it. So I'm looking forward to this conversation. Don't know where exactly it's going to uh, lead, but to, by way of introduction for people who don't know, um, Dr. Lewis Marcos that you are, he's an apologist, okay, well-known apologist. He's a CS Lewis expert, Tolkien expert for people who like that can check him out on those things. He's written about 25 books, I think. Wow. Um, um, I mentioned the one from Plato to Christ, how Platonic thought shaped the Christian faith, and then the myth-made fact, reading Greek and Roman mythology through Christian eyes. Now, the guy's a serious scholar, but he's also a serious believer, and he believes in Orthodox Christian faith and uh, wants to share that. But the way that you do it is... um, you want to go back into these pagan classics and, and mine them for evidences of God's hand and grace in them and for the story of
2: Christ. Right. It it is important. I mean, you need to understand a central theological distinction between general revelation and special revelation. Mm -hmm. Uh, And general revelation is the way that God speaks to all people. Mm -hmm. He speaks to us through creation. That's Roman one, right? That's Mm -hmm. why men are without excuse, because God has Mm -hmm. made his Mm -hmm. power and glory known to the creation. Then he speaks to our conscience. That's Romans two, right? The Gentiles who are without the law are a law. The law has been written on their hearts, really upon their conscience. He speaks to our reason. He speaks to our imagination to quote C.S. Lewis. He even speaks through the good dreams of the pagans. Mm -hmm. It's a wonderful C.S. Lewis line, right? It must be that way, gentlemen, because Mm -hmm. we are all made in God's image. Mm -hmm. And though we are fallen, though we are depraved, we cannot save ourselves. We have not lost the image Mm -hmm. of God. his image is still written in us. We still desire virtue. The trouble Mm -hmm. is we're fallen, and so we always go Mm -hmm. astray. But God speaks to all people now special revelation is when god speaks directly he does that in the old testament the new testament the prophets and supremely Mm -hmm. in christ himself and you're right much of my work is about how general revelation particularly the greeks and romans points to special revelation Mm -hmm. and i should say in case we use the word pagan a lot today when i use the word pagan I don't mean a frat boy from the University of Texas, okay? <laughs> Pagan is not necessarily a negative mm-hmm. word. It means the pre-Christian Greeks and Romans. Mm-hmm. Pagan actually literally means a hillbilly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. um, but it was <clears> the people <throat> out in the boondocks. And again, even though obviously they were wrong about the gods, they are still speaking out of general revelation. Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, let's just put it this way, gentlemen. Okay. Did it ever bother you? Are you telling me that until the birth of Christ, God ignored 99% of humanity? Well, yes. (laughs) Only to the Jews did he give special revelation. Only to them did he speak as Yahweh, his covenant name. Mm -hmm. But he didn't ignore the rest of the Mm -hmm. people of the world. He spoke to them. Again, creation, Mm -hmm. conscience, reason, imagination. And I've often said, I would like some Chinese Christian to write from Confucius to Christ, mm-hmm. right? I mean, I believe that if we look, we're going to find those glimpses mm-hmm. and intimations in every culture, in every nation. Because Jesus is, of course, the Jewish, Muslim, mm-hmm. but he's also the savior of the world. And so he not only fulfills the Old Testament law and prophets, he fulfills the highest yearnings mm-hmm. of the pagan people. Mm.
1: I want to just speak for Mm. a minute about this just to set this up, because here's where it's hitting hitting home to me as I've been thinking about it, that I feel like our doctrine of general revelation is weak. It's weak. And I fear that's the case because I think we look at general revelation, we just think, oh, uh, Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God, like creation declares God's glory, but these days we have science now. So to the average Christian, I think we think, oh, well, science explains away all that. And so therefore our main thing is special revelation. It's only the Bible. And I'm saying that's wrong. We need a thicker, meatier, more robust sense of general revelation because it's still revelation. (laughs) It's still God revealing about himself to the world. He does it in his word but he does it in his world too. And where the rubber uh, hit the road for me was realizing (laughs) that when we lose this more robust understanding of of general revelation, what starts to happen is the world can, um, like the non-believing world will look at things out in creation and mislabel them, right? (laughs) We see that happening. We see people saying that uh, one gender is another gender we see people saying that all uh ways are the same we see all this relativism of of truth and people literally can't look at something out that god has made and make sense of it anymore and god is ceasing you know to um to not that he is but speak to them through general revelation and that and well, we're seeing part, we're losing part of it. the
2: problem, part of the problem Sam is that we we there's this Misunderstanding of the Calvinist phrase "total depravity." Mm-hmm. What total depravity means, or is supposed to mean, is that every part of us was subjected to the fall: our body, our soul, our mind, our reason, our Everything is subject to the fall. But for a lot of people, I remember this particularly growing up. They treat total depravity as if it means utter depravity, as if our white is God's black and our black is... No, that's not the way it is. There are such things as virtuous pagans. Now, their virtue doesn't save them. But again, we are in God's image. And we've just, again, we've made a division, an artificial division between things. And the weird thing is, is that a lot of otherwise strong Christians have bought into the secular enlightenment idea that it's either reason or revelation, and there's nothing in between. Mm -hmm. And this Mm -hmm. is really problematic, Mm -hmm. right? This is why it's really ironic, because I speak, I spend a great deal of my time speaking for classical Christian schools. Mm -hmm. And most of those have come out of a very Reformed Presbyterian Calvinist group. Mm It's ironic that the Calvinists have been the ones that have been learning from the pagan classics because mm-hmm. it wasn't that long ago when you talk to a Calvinist and they didn't even want to talk about natural mm-hmm. law. Uh, that's just a Catholic. No. And, and, and it's, it's amazing how quickly things are changing and the best kind of reform person is understanding that the very beginning of Calvin's institutes of the Calvin's institutes of the Christian church begins with the distinction between general and special revelation. Mm-hmm. And the Calvinist Bible, do you gentlemen know what the Calvinist Bible is? It's Paul's epistle to the Romans <laughs> and a few other books. <laughs> Romans also begins, as we just said, mm-hmm. with the distinction between general mm-hmm. and special revelation. Mm-hmm. So we, we, we're we understanding again, natural law. the And you know what, Sam? What book proves how much we can learn from general revelation? Can you guess the name of this book? It is called The Consolation of Philosophy, and it's by Boethius, right? Is that that our segue here? Yeah, that is our segue. Boethius was a Christian, maybe even a bishop. Mm -hmm. He died for the Christian faith. He was Mm -hmm. working for an area. Those are people who said Jesus was a man but not God. And he was martyred for that. He wrote books about Christianity, Mm -hmm. but around 500 When he set out to write the Consolation of Philosophy, he wanted to do something really unique. Others had done it. And he he was
1: in prison awaiting his execution. Yeah,
2: in prison awaiting execution. And he thought, okay, the Consolation of Philosophy means what can I learn from philosophy that will console me during this time Mm. of distress and persecution? I'm in prison. What consolation can I get? And he made an amazing decision in this book. He wrote other books about Christianity. In this book, I am going to confine myself only to general revelation. He himself was a believer, but I want to see what we can learn, so sort to of speak, on our own steam. What can we learn from Plato, Aristotle, Cicero, Virgil? What, what can we learn from these pagan thinkers, pre-Christian pagan thinkers that will point towards the truth. And there is a great deal of truth in, and I'll give you, if somebody wants another version of this, read Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. Book three of Mere Christianity is about living the moral life. Mm -hmm. And a good deal of what Lewis says is lifted right out of Aristotle. Because Aristotle got a lot of things right about virtue. Poor Aristotle did not know that we can't be saved by our own virtue. But we're still called to act virtuously. So what's unique about it is again, it, it is it's it's a bridge between mm-hmm. the pre-Christian and the Christian. And now that we live in a post-Christian world, we could really use that bridge again. Because
1: mm-hmm. it's a bridge to it's a bridge to reach our culture. And if if someone won't listen to us as we bring them scripture, then surely they might listen to us if we bring them reasonable arguments from everybody's common experience. That's the power of it, that that from, from common experience we can learn about God and God speaks to us because this is God's world that he has made and he is in all of it. He's in all of it.
0: So I, as, as I listen to this, I've, i got a good friend who goes into jail with me who's an apologist. He had a, just had a big conference in the Chicago land area a few weeks ago. And he's all about apologetics. He's a part of, was, or maybe so there's a part of Ravi, Ravi Zach and Ryan's his team and all that kind of stuff. And so, you know, as I'm listening to the general revelation, like I use that a lot because I'm dealing with people who like, they don't want to hear nothing from the Bible because they say a man wrote it. Mm-hmm. Right. So then I got to use another tool, in the, tool but in the toolbox to try to approach them with it. And when I do that from a naturalistic standpoint, their responses are almost always the, the the depravity in the world, the mass shootings, the injustices, and all these things. Like that becomes their response, right? Mm-hmm. So if there is a God, then why is <laughs> He allowing this stuff mm-hmm. to happen? You know, and then they just get stuck on that. So I'm sure you encounter similar things oh, being yeah. an apologist. And so, what would you what would be oh, yeah. your what what would be your your number one tool you would use? You know, from a a simple standpoint to explain to them.
2: um It's it's amazing. And this is, okay, I mentioned Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. Book one of Mere Christianity is only an argument for theism, for the existence of God. Then in book two, he moves from God to the belief that Jesus is the son of God, right? But he says, you know, if I start reading the Bible to people and they don't believe in God and they don't recognize the authority of Scripture, I'm just barking up a tree, right? I, I mm-hmm. at least have to establish common ground. And the common ground is that we all have an inbuilt built sense of morality. There's three there's two things that we all know. We know that we should live in a certain way, and we know that we don't. You know, mm-hmm. people talk about I can't believe in God because there's so much evil and suffering in the <laughs> world, which is basically what you said, Luke. Mm-hmm. Lewis. Yep. Ask him this question. If there was no God, how would you know that the world is unjust? (laughs) Mm -hmm. The only way you can understand the world is unjust is if you're measuring it against something. What are you measuring it against? Now, Mm -hmm. people want to say everything's relative. There is no morality. Lewis says, no, there is a moral code written on our conscience, and we all know what Mm -hmm. it is. He he used the shorthand word, the Tao, to show that whether you're from the East or the West, we have a basic understanding of morality. And if anybody says, well, define the town. This is how I define it. It's the way you expect other people to treat you, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? We know, look, if you're waiting online and somebody cuts in front of you and you get mad and they say, well, that's just the way we do it in my culture. <laughs> you ain't gonna buy that, okay? Yeah, no, yeah. what you've done is wrong, mm-hmm. right? We, we couldn't have had the Nuremberg trials when they put the Nazi war criminals on trial. The only way you can do that, and you know, by then, Europe was very relativistic. The only way, especially Europe, the only way you could do that is if you believe, number one, there actually is right and wrong. Number two, that the Nazis actually violated that code. Mm-hmm. But number three, that they knew they were violating it. Mm-hmm. Because if they could prove they didn't know they were violating a code, then we would put them in an asylum not in prison. <laughs> and so we, we know yeah. right from wrong. And the outrage that you get from these people is proof.
1: Mm.
2: It built in them a sense of justice. And they recognize that justice when it is broken. Mm-hmm. And, and that, Boethius understood this as well.
1: That's that's general revelation. That's what it is. it is. Like, and to be honest, as I was listening to Boethius for the first time, I, I didn't think at all about general revelation. Like it didn't occur to me because his, his arguments, the arguments that are presented and the drama of what's happening was so powerful to me that I, it just didn't even dawn on me. Mm. Not until I started digging in and thinking about it afterwards. But um, so, so tell us now what, so Boethius is um, somewhat autobiographical, autobiographical writing from prison awaiting execution. His spirits are down and then he gets a visitor. Who who visits him and it's what happens?
2: R- r- really amazing. Okay. It is partly an allegory. Yeah. Right. And while he's there running away in prison, he gets visited by lady philosophy, right? Philosophy itself in the form of a beautiful woman. And she comes in and you think she's going to give him a hug and say, how's my poor boy. That's right. But she comes in and she scolds him. Mm-hmm. And by the way, I don't know if you've made it through all of the Divine Comedy. A lot of people read the Inferno and they stop there. But if you make it through the whole thing at the end of Paradiso, when he gets to the Garden of Eden and Dante meets Beatrice, she does the that same scene thing. is patterned directly on the scene in the mm-hmm. beginning, where Beatrice, who now represents divine love and truth and theology even, she scolds him. Why? Because he has forgotten. Well, what does it say in Revelation? Revelation. I have this one thing against you. You have forsaken your first love. Mm -hmm. Boethius, you have forsaken your first love and turned over to poetry. Mm -hmm. She doesn't really mean great poetry. Mm -hmm. You've given over to a lesser imitation, to just being uh, entertained. Mm -hmm. And you have forsaken your first love, the, the goodness of philosophy. And she says, watch out, those lady poets are basically the sirens. Remember the ones that sing Mm. to the sailors, beautiful (laughs) songs, and they're attracted and they crash on the rocks and they drown. And there's a little psychodrama going on here. Move away from the lower things and raise your eyes to the higher things. Mm. Like move away from your animal nature and lift up your more angelic nature Mm. because you know, the ancient Greeks didn't have access to the to the Bible. They didn't know that you know we were made in God's image but fallen. But they certainly recognized there was a part of us that was bestial and a part of us that was angelic, and that there was a wrestling on that, and that we were we were supposed to move beyond to a higher mm-hmm. vision of things, to a higher calling. So they understood that. That's why I had their schools of philosophy, like the Stoics, and Epicureans, where they're trying to, to be more vertical. And, and gentlemen, I don't know if you've noticed this, but there's been a rise in America of, of Stoicism. Mm-hmm. And I've told people, if you could prove to me that Jesus didn't raise from the dead, then Christianity would be meaningless, and I would probably become a Stoic. I think mm-hmm. it's the next best choice. And if God <laughs> has not revealed mm-hmm. himself, that's probably the best choice, especially for a man. Yeah. Uh, and... and uh, there was that desire to improve the self, mm-hmm. right? Now, as Christians, you know, have to hit a, a, a brick wall of sin because we can be saved and have the Holy Spirit inside of us. But they still strove to perfect their humanity and to move upward. Mm-hmm. And that's Lady Philosophy calling him to turn away. You know what it would be like? It's a general revelation version of looks like my internet's unstable. We'll wait here a second. Can you still hear me? Yep, yeah, I can, you can say, hear you? Yeah. Okay, good. Uh, maybe the best way to exp- explain this is the general revelation of that early scene. If we were to take it up into revel- full, special revelation, mm. we would hear these words, which you'll recognize. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his mm. wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim." in the light of his glory and grace. That's ultimately what yep. we're talking about. Turn away from the lower and mm-hmm. put your eyes on the higher, mm. on the light.
1: So I have a, a personal story to illustrate this further. Okay. So by way of just summary though, so at, at the beginning of Boethius' Consolation of Philosophy, Lady Wisdom comes and says, S- stop trusting in the lower things. That's what she means by poetry, the entertaining things, and start looking lift your gaze. Right. So I had my own prison experience and my, um, I, I felt myself during this very dark night in my soul. Uh, I felt myself like literally losing my mind, losing something. And I remember being in this place in my soul where, Like I was just one or two thoughts away from like coming completely undone, Mm. like literally. And I felt myself slipping in that way. And it was almost like uh, being in a strong river, feeling a current. And if I knew if I just stepped over this line this way, I'd be undone. I don't know what would happen to me, go insane. I don't know. Mm. But I felt myself being on that edge. And uh, uh, my pastor came and um, came to my home and we were talking and among all the other things that he said, which he didn't really know any of this mental aspect was going on with me. But at the end of our conversation, he said to me, he, first of all, he didn't say, I'll pray for you. I mean, he did say these, I'll pray for you, you know, read your Bible more or that. I mean, he, that's not where he went. But he looked at me, he grabbed both of my shoulders. <laughs> he looked me dead in the eye. And in his Scottish accent, he said, hold on to your mind. Wow. <gasps> mm. And his bro hold on to your mind, Sammy. <laughs> I mean that's that's what he said to me. And and I thought wow. Like that was so right. Me. That was exactly wow. what I needed to hear cuz he knew he could sense in me that when you put your your gaze to the lower things, all the terrible things that could happen, all the lesser things, you're going to be gone. Mm. You have to lift your gaze. Wow.
2: So so like Yo, play- Plato, Plato mentions speaking. this. Yeah, Plato mentions this in the Timaeus, and, and and Boethius is picking up on it. That you know, God made man to stand upright, so that our head is pointing towards the mm-hmm. skies. I mean, he he made that a, a point uh, of that. Oh, by the way, uh, you you now can be together with C.S. Lewis, who in the Great Divorce. Finds himself lost and gets helped by George MacDonald, speaking in a good Scottish <laughs> brogue right. in *The Great Divorce*. That's so I, at first, I thought you were making a metaphor there. That's pretty funny, <laughs> but you really had a Scottish preacher to help you out. I love, you know?
1: No, oh, true. my gosh, it's true. that's
2: great. That's but, great. Um, but, but that's yes, why it, it resonated so much with me. Up. Yeah, and and that's why people still debate whether Plato believed this or not. But in his myths, never in the self, never in the dialectic, but in the myths, he speaks often of reincarnation but he uses it metaphorically as well you know that you, you can reincarnate as a dumb fish you know mm-hmm. i mean if if you're living mm-hmm. that kind of life you're getting lower you get and lower down, yeah. and lower rather than moving upward uh, ascending the rising mm-hmm. path well that's uh, cause that's what it's all about
1: and that's called the beatific vision which you write about in your Very article good. and which is in consolation of philosophy so so for people what is the beatific vision and what does that have to do with with this movement
2: it's wonderful. Now, a lot of people hear beatific vision and think that means beautiful vision. Mm. And it is beautiful, but beatific, think of the beatitudes, blessed, et cetera. So it really means the blessed vision uh, in Latin. Uh, and the blessed vision, now, interestingly, the beatific vision was very, very big in particularly medieval Christianity, Thomas Aquinas and others. But it actually goes back to Plato, that mm. old pagan. Plato talked about mm. we need to ascend the rising path and the beatific vision— is to look upon and therefore commune with, participate in the forms, right? In Plato, we have lots and lots of individual things on the earth, but the form, the idea, the perfection, beauty with a capital B, justice with a capital J, truth with a capital T, those things are in the heavens. And the, the beatific vision, the ultimate goal of man, is to be in the and in the good. Now, the wonderful thing about Christianity is the only problem with Plato's scientific vision is that the forms are ultimately impersonal. Mm-hmm. Now, Augustine took Plato's forms and put them in the mind of God. That's where they are. And for a Christian, the true beatific vision is to contemplate and, and, and you know, come into the presence of not impersonal forms, but the personal triune God to in a way participate in the love between father and son, son and father, Mm -hmm. the Holy Spirit. And so the Christians did not do away with the pre-Christian beatific vision. They took it up and fulfilled Mm -hmm. or perfected. Think of Jesus saying, I come not to break the law, but to fulfill it. Well, again, I believe Jesus also fulfills all those little glimpses we get in the higher pagans, what Dante called the virtuous pagans. That's that's the ultimate goal, to move upward into that mm. contemplation. And by the way, a lot of people have this idea that Plato was all about contemplation and Aristotle was all about this world. But at the end of the Nicomachean Ethics, Aristotle says the best life is not the life of action, but the life of contemplation. So even Aristotle... Was moving towards that idea of contemplating mm-hmm. the perfection and the divine.
1: So, last episode we had an episode on union with Christ. Oh, right. So that I think dovetails perfectly with this with the Christian understanding of the beatific vision, how we're united with Christ, and that leads to our glorification. When we see Him, we will be like Him.
2: Right. It, it is. I mean, the the, the I, I grew up with Greek Orthodox, so. And, 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 you know, the Greeks call it theosis, yes. that God became like us so we can become like him, which comes right out of Athanasius on the incarnation. Another of Lewis's favorite works. In fact, he wrote a, uh, an introduction to a new translation of Athanasius uh, a while back.
1: Something's hindering, um, something's hindering Boethius, and it's not lust, it's not pride, it's not greed. Uh, that Lady um, Philosophy really uh, uh, not condemns him for, but uh, gets on his case for. What 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 sin was hindering him?
2: Well, again, when we give into despair, we turn our gaze downward. Instead mm. of looking upward, we be, I mean, we would call it, say, navel-gazing. Mm. We end up looking at ourselves and looking at our situation when we looking up. And why is he upset? Because he's not only given himself over to the lower poetry, he has wed himself to Dame Fortune. That would be Vanna White, like the Wheel mm. of Fortune. <laughs> Dame Fortune. And Boethys didn't necessarily invent the idea, but he perfected the idea of the wheel of fortune that appears again and again in Chaucer, in Shakespeare, in so many other uh, Dante, of course, Dante, Chaucer, and Shakespeare particularly borrow the image. And, and a lot of um, editions I have of Boethius have an image of the wheel of fortune. And the trouble is, if you make Dame Fortune your mistress, yeah, you're going to be up here for a while, but sooner or later you're going to be down there. Hmm. And you and and don't you know don't attack dame fortune and blame her that is her nature her nature is to take you up and take you down and if that's what you're giving your life over to as you know machiavelli later talks about that we have to beat dame fortune and control over ride woods but again stop focusing on these things that come and go get off the roller coaster i guess we would say and keep your focus upward but that image of Dave Fortune. There's even a wonderful moment in King Lear, Shakespeare's King Lear, uh, where Kent, the, the one good character, is put in the stocks uh, and he tries to look up and he says, Fortune, turn your wheel, because he figures he's at the very bottom. You can't get any lower than this. So uh, it's kind of like, you know, I live in Houston, the Houston Texans. They, they've got to get better because they can't get worse, <laughs> you know, that kind of stuff. So,
1: <laughs> what are some other examples of ways that people trust in fortune today? What would that look like?
2: Well, we, we put all, you know, here's, here's the problem, guys. It, we don't just put our money on these things. We put our identity. Mm-hmm. So we identify ourselves totally with something that is by nature fickle. Mm-hmm. It is not eternal. It's not going to last. That That's a kind of idolatry. Mm-hmm. So, yes, I mean, if, if you worship the market, if you worship, you know, film even. I mean, I love film, but everything goes up and down and up and down. And we end up being very unstable. We end up making, uh we're Epicureans. We end up making pleasure and hedonism our only standard. And those things are going to go up and down. You know, it's really funny because original Epicureans uh, who live for pleasure were smarter than we, than we were because they understood that if you overindulge in pleasure, you're gonna hurt your body and then there'll be no pleasure. Right. So actually, the, the traditional hedonists were very moderate uh in their behavior because they didn't want to go into these excesses. But we just sort of, you know, let everything go, hang out, and and we end up drained in the end. We we cannot put all of our faith and identity in a man-made thing. It's not it's not Christ. Right. Do you think I this is you.
1: what's going on when um she's like trying to diagnose Boethius? Okay. And she asks him, Well, what do you believe about the creation of the world? Like what, what's the source and creation of the world? And Boethius says, Well, God is. He answered and she she says, You answered the right way. And and she's still she she says she still can't figure out the disconnect. And then she asks him, like, Well, what is a man? And he says, some like he gives some kind of generic definition of a mortal person who can like reason but then suddenly she's able to uh, make the correct diagnosis because she sees that although he believed that god started the world he was still trusting himself not to god but to dame fortune right, right.
2: and and i think we, we, yeah I we, mean, we get there but too but a good way to- a good way to explain this is a very, very important Greek word that that Aristotle uses a lot is telos or telos. Mm-hmm. Telos means an end, but a purposeful end. And if we don't know why we were created, if we don't know our final end or final purpose, mm-hmm. look, here, here's a good example. Let's say I had a Stradivarius, right? Mm-hmm. One of those beautiful violets. I've got a Stradivarius on the hand. But I don't know what its telos is. I don't know what its purpose, why it was made. And so there might be a loose nail in my desk and I might pick up the Stradivarius and use it to bang Mm -hmm. the nail in. I hope that put a shiver through (laughs) your body, right? Because if I don't know the proper purpose and end of the violin, Mm -hmm. I am going to destroy it. That's certainly true of our bodies, it's true mm. of our sexuality. If we don't know the purpose for why we're here, uh, now the famous Christian answer it's, it's one of the uh, fa- favorite quotes amongst evangelicals. The Westminster Short, Westminster Shorter Catechism says, What is the end of man? and it's what to Gl- glorify, glorify God. God and enjoy, enjoy him, him forever. forever. What is the chief end of man? Again, when you say what is the chief end of it, that means the telos. Mm -hmm. And that's where the word teleology comes from, the study of sort of why things are, what their purpose is. And actually, when Jesus says it is finished, in Greek, it's Mm tetelestai. It is accomplished. It is brought to completion. So that word uh, is, 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 is very important to understand the fullness of that meaning. And again, Boethius is drawing on Plato, Aristotle, Cicero, all of that stuff is drawing on it to have a bigger picture of who Mm -hmm. we are and what our final end is, or again, the chief end or purpose of man.
1: And so when you have your telos right, when you have it wrong, all all sorts of things can fall apart. But when you have it right, then you can endure the hardest things. You you can get through them because— you have a goal and a purpose, and like there's a, another powerful moment where she looks at him and says, "You seem to think that happiness comes from inside you, hmm. but it doesn't oh, come really. from inside you." You know, th- he, and that's that's powerful because she's saying you can be in prison waiting for execution, and you can still be happy if you figure out how hmm. to get your telos right.
2: I mean, you know, in Nechamkin ethics, uh, Aristotle famously says that basically the chief end of man is happiness but we have just desiccated that word it's eudaimio which is kind of like good spirited" would maybe be a more direct translation but it's not that's probably what thomas jefferson had in mind when he said life liberty the pursuit of happiness he did not mean happiness in terms of uh, epicureanism and hedonism excess and i wanted anything i want i want a loopa and i want it now That's not what happiness means, right? Uh, It's it's like the difference between uh, calmness and peace. When Jesus says, I give you the peace that surpasses all understanding, it's more like joy. It is an even keel where where we are, you know, one with God and we are where we are supposed to be. See, this is why a lot of people are turning to uh, Eastern medicine, because holistic medicine remembers what used to be the case before the Enlightenment, that health meant, balance or harmony. Now everything's chop this, chop that, give drugs. We've lost the idea of health as a balance or harmony between us. That's why a lot of stuff that we think of as new age used to be part of the medieval church, because we understood that God created us, God created nature, and we are in sync. Nature controls us. It doesn't mean that the stars control us, but there's an influence. There's a relation in there there's and more general really revelation like you say it again
1: there's more general revelation
2: yeah it, it is. And is we, we've lost that we're mm-hmm. we're cut off and you know what because the church has basically bought into the enlightenment and is overly rationalized mm-hmm. a lot of people that should be attracted to the church end up going to the new age because they're not finding any magic or wonder or awe and gentlemen there is no greater magic than the incarnation. God becomes man, Amen. but remains God. There is no greater mm. magic and mystery mm-hmm. than that. And we've just, we've lost our story. We've lost our sacred mm-hmm. narratives people talk about. Uh, and, and we need to bring that back. We need to tell a better story. Mm-hmm. Today, we need better images too, uh, but we at least need a better story.
0: So speaking of story and images, <clears> that wasn't planned to ask this question, but mm-hmm. what are your thoughts and views on movies, videos that are made, those are, you know, images and stories about the Bible in terms of stuff that's added
2: or taken well, away. We are we are so lucky. We live in the era of The Chosen, which is wonderful. OK, and it's kind of ironic because The Chosen, which may be to me, maybe the best example of somewhat popular culture, was written by Dallas Jenkins, who is the son of the guy who did the Left Behind series. Mm-hmm. OK, so we are moving on, gentlemen. Uh, the, the new movie, Jesus Revolution, it's getting better and better. Now, we talk about adding things. Okay, what's so powerful about The Chosen, I've been leading my whole Bible study for The Chosen because I love it, uh, is it does add things. It's to give backstories, not only to all of the disciples, but it's trying to give backstories to all of Jesus's miracles. Now, why is that important? Okay, think about it today. When Jesus does a in our life, it is very rarely, if ever, just some arbitrary thing, right? Usually, everything in our life is moving in that direction. And then Jesus does something, like, like the Scottish guy talking to you, Sam. Mm-hmm. Just suddenly, God speaks or acts, and everything comes together. It's not some arbitrary thing, like a lightning strike. So my favorite example comes in season two. You, you remember the beautiful story at the end of John chapter one, when uh, Philip uh, introduces Jesus to Nathaniel, And Jesus says, behold, a true Israelite in whom there is no guile. How do you know me, Lord? Before Philip called you, while you were yet under the fig tree, I saw you. Yep. To which he responds, my Lord and my God. And we're like, what? Really? I mean, a mind reader could have done that. What the Chosen suggests, we don't know, all right? The Bible's not meant to tell us everything, right? It makes sense that when Nathaniel was sitting under that fig tree, he was having an existential crisis. He was crying out to God and asking, God, don't you see me? Have you Mm -hmm. forgotten me? They give him a backstory where God called him to use his architectural gifts to build new synagogues that would glorify God. All of this— and it seems so sure that that was his calling. And then something bad happens, whatever his life falls apart. He loses his job. He's under the tree and says, God, I tried to serve you. Don't, don't you see me? Right. And so then when Jesus says it, you know, you can't help shedding a tear at the end. It all comes together. So yes, we, we can do that. Okay. We, we understand that we're adding things, but every, every sermon adds something, good Lord. Okay. Uh, <clears throat>
0: yeah, well, let me let me, so let me let me let me play devil's advocate for a minute, And I'm not saying I'm for or against the chosen, by the way, but let's just say I'm against it. So I think that one of the things I see in this culture today is because of technology that unites us, it makes people have this insatiable desire for more. I want more, mm. more, 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 more. And my fear is that. Because of this desire for people to have more, that insane. I want more, and saying I even need more. Does that mean that does that mean that God not give me enough of what I need? That's already right here, which is a ton. That I don't need to have that extra. So, what would you what would let's you say to that?
2: And, and a lot of people. I mean, let's start with this, okay? The Bible tells us everything we need to know. Mm -hmm. to find salvation in Jesus Christ and to live a Christian life. It tells us everything we need to know, but it doesn't tell us everything there is to know. Mm -hmm. Do you know how the Bible refers to other books that are not in the Bible? As it says in the book of the Kings, it's always referring to other things. All the early church fathers spoke of how uh, Joseph and Moses were educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, which, of course, they used to serve God. Daniel was educated in all the wisdom of the Babylonians and later of the Persians but used it towards God uh, they often use or biblical illustration of remember when the the, the Jews are about to leave uh, leave a uh, uh, slavery in Egypt and God tells them go to your neighbors and ask them for gold and silver and thus did they despoil the Egyptians right now, some of that gold they used to make the golden calf, but most of that gold they used for the temple to glorify God. So we can't misuse anything. even what God gives? They misuse the man and the quail. Right? We can misuse anything. People misuse the Bible. That's where cults start, actually. Um, so, so, yes, there's only – I mean, again, really, if we use that logic, then there's no reason to go to college, really, okay? Who needs all of this education? Just get to work. I mean, so in other words, <laughs> it, yes – there's very little that we actually need right but there's more that we can learn from and more that we can grow yeah and but, when it's done well like yeah but
0: just but just sticking to the context of the Bible and not like I don't need to go to college and learn how to do a job like that's that's pretty ignorant for a person if they were to think that but but to to think about the miraculousness of God which I believe John's gospel is written, specifically not exclusively but specifically to portray jesus as god that this is one of many instances in john's gospel that he's portraying himself as god because he only in a supernatural way could know that he was sitting underneath the fig tree and so that that historically has been what i've gleaned from that and it just adds another stone to all the other stones in my heart and in my mind that jesus actually is god But to know that he may have been crying out to God for any particular reason and that satisfied that in him, like for me being a student of the Bible, which I believe every Christian should become a student of the Bible, you can glean those thoughts from other scripture in the Bible that the Lord is with you, that he hasn't forsaken you. You know, like there is plenty of other scripture to give us that part that we need instead of us having to add it to a story to to bring it out more. So that we can shed that tear, and I'm not saying that's the intent of it, but my so now my personal fear, I'm just being devil's advocate. Now my personal fear about movies in general about the Bible is you have all types of movies that claim scriptural stuff from from Noah that I don't know was it Russell Crowe, Mel Somebody the Noah, which is just crazy to documentaries on discovery channel about Mary Magdalene and Jesus being lovers and even maybe being married. When you enter in all the stuff that's written for a non-believer or a person who was maybe raised in a certain faith that was just like, Hey, we, we go to Catholic mass. We go to the Presbyterian church. We go to the Lutheran church just out of, of sheer. My parents made me go and I learned some stories, but I really don't know nothing to watch these things and then label it God or godly or this is what the Bible says, because I remember a tidbit of this. Oh, and now the story is complete in my mind. Is it doing more harm than good? That's my fear. I don't have uh, the answer to the question. I mean,
2: no, no, I think I think that there is a fear there. And I mean, like I said, Dallas himself was always saying this is supposed to drive you back to the Bible and actually read, which I think it's doing. But uh, maybe a better way to answer this, uh, Lewis, is that. OK, we read the Bible and we come to know Christ. But I think something like The Chosen is helping us understand Christ, but it's helping us to understand ourselves. And, and I don't mean that in a navel-gazing way. Sometimes we forget when we read the Gospels that the apostles are real people like us, mm-hmm. people with flaws, people with struggles. We Sometimes we imagine the early church was perfect. And of course, we've done that because we're like, Ah, uh, I'm a Protestant. I'm reclaiming the original church. They had just as many problems as we did. We've got to get away from this, this idea that there was this perfect moment and it's been crude. I mean, that's basically what every liberal does. Oh, yes, I believe in primitive Christianity that went bad at this point. I mean, we, we, we fall into that. So when I watch The Chosen, I am reminded, I mean, they do such a great job showing how hard it is for these disciples to live together and work together. And they start jockeying for power of course we know that from the scriptures because pete james and john say hey we want to sit your right left hand mm-hmm. you know it's like so what it's doing is it's helping us not just to understand christ but how he impacts people and transforms people and so we're drawn into the scriptures rather than holding it at arm's length like like the old pictures that show jesus on the cross like he was asleep Right, Uh, Mm. uh, too afraid to to show the actual physical pain that he felt. Right, he even cried out, My God, my God, why is that forsaken? Uh, now I grew up, I'm I'm 59, so when I grew up, I watched Jesus of Nazareth, and that was one of the first miniseries to really draw out the full of Jesus. And you know, I still, I mean, there's been nothing as good until the chosen as Jesus of Nazareth, so. We need that. We we need to be drawn, I guess, into the gospels and into the personal aspect and understand their real people. Because, gentlemen, too often, especially Baptists and Calvinists, too often we start treating the Bible as if it were the Quran. Okay. Mm-hmm. Muslims believe that the Quran was literally dictated to Muhammad. In fact, they believe Muhammad was illiterate. So they believe that the Quran is literally a virgin birth. That's it. There's nothing human in it. That is not what the Bible says of itself, although we act like that sometimes, especially Baptists. The Bible is fully inspired by God, but fully written by men. Mm-hmm. I, 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 it's without error. Okay, But maybe a best way to say it is that like Jesus, who is the Word of God, the Bible, the Word of God, is also incarnational. Fully God and fully man. Fully inspired, fully human. And The more we understand the first century uh, A.D., the more we understand its culture, the more we'll understand. Like, now, the chosen is not the first one to do it, but reminding us of the Jewishness of Jesus. And one of the best things they do is to show us how the disciples are absolutely saturated in the Old Testament. The verses and the stories and the illustrations— and they're living and talking to each other through those. We kind of forget that sometimes uh, when we read the scriptures. So the danger is there, Lewis. There's no doubt yeah. the danger is there. Uh, so, and, But so used one, rightly, I think it's yeah. a good tool. So one last
0: question about that, and I'll let Sandra, because we got a <laughs> lot of good stuff. So I'm curious. So you said you're leading your, your personal Bible study group through that. So, have you I'm, I'm guessing that you probably have led Bible study groups prior to the Chosen oh, right. being in existence. For a long time. So yeah. Oh, yeah. how have you seen or what changes have you seen with what you're doing to Chosen versus when you didn't use it? A lot, a lot of change, not a lot of change. Like what, what have you seen? What makes you go, wow, I'm glad I can use this as an aid or as a visual to help because this is so much
2: richer, so much better
0: if that's the right. case. And it's not its not better
2: than the Bible, okay? But it <laughs> highlights and draws out, again, the whole idea of
0: backstory. So backstory, I get that until he comes in. Like, I get the backstory, and I was just thinking when he was saying before, like, when we see him crying, you know, under the fig tree because God hasn't, whatever I can't remember what he said exactly, like, We get that in our own real lives. Mm -hmm. So do we need a fictitious backstory made up when someone in said Bible study group, if they're willing enough to say, hey, I actually am struggling. And like by Jesus saying that to him, that really spoke to me and my, you know what I mean? Like, do Mm -hmm. we need a made up backstory or is that something that can be left up to us in a group to bring up real life backstories that, um, you know, that, that facilitates the Mm -hmm. same thing. Does that make Mm -hmm.
1: sense? Yeah. My mind was, um, going to like good commentaries, provide historical context and being able to see, uh, the chosen and see the very Hebrew Jewishness of it.
0: Yeah. But your historical context is different than just something that's manufactured. Right.
1: Well, I like when I see The Chosen, I see that it's bringing out the historical context. So I can I can either read about it in a commentary oh. or I could see what the context was like on this on yeah, this I'm, program. And so, and so for me, I'm so not that, I'm
0: not I'm not. That's great. Yeah, I'm that's, talking about the I'm an architect and.
1: Yeah, no, no, I'm, no, I'm, I'm getting. There. Oh, OK. I'm getting there. All right. So that's um, that's one part about it to me. But then where the individual characters come in and like am an architect or whatever. To me that's like if you're in a room with someone and that's someone's testimony and that person's able to say this is what happened to me. Um I was and and in this case the testimony happens to be someone from scripture, but if you are in a Bible study in your living room and someone comes there and has a story about being an architect and this is what happened to them. I mean that that could be powerful and it could 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 minister. So we're getting uh, Dr. Marcos back in. We lost him for a second there, but we kept blabbing away. Yeah. Just so to let's see if, um, here he comes, if he's coming back and, um, then we can get back into some Boethius. There he is. I see him.
2: We got you, brother. Oh, about that. Having some bad weather over here. My, my internet went out. Okay. We're okay.
1: Back. Well, we're going to, if it's okay with you, yeah, yeah, get, let's roll. We'll get, we got some more Bo- Boethius. Yeah. Get back to Boethius. And, uh, one of the big questions, yeah, one of the big, yeah, one of the big questions that he has, Boethius has, is why do wicked people get away with wickedness, and uh, good people, you know, they do good and they wind up in in prison or wherever, but bad people they seem to get away with it, and. Lady Philosophy talks a lot about this issue. She goes on and on about it. And I recognized in her words something that I remember reading from Plato that has always stood out to me, that that basically um, Boethius just put, put back in Lady Philosophy's mouth and had her talk on and on and on about it. And that was what Plato said was um, he who... He who commits an injustice is made far more wicked than the one who suffers it. The person who commits the crime, does the sin, is made far more wicked than the person who suffers it. And that was always like a one-off quote I remember from Plato. But then in this dramatic story with Lady Philosophy, when Boethius is saying, hey, why are the wicked getting away with this? That's what she keys off of, right? I don't know if Dr. Marcus, you remember that. Those no,
2: it, it's amazing. I mean, you know, going right back to Plato's Republic, I mean, he, uh, with general revelation, he understands it is better to suffer wrong than to do wrong. Mm-hmm. Socrates basically says that in his apology as well. Uh, and and we because we're not understanding what justice or injustice does to our soul. Mm-hmm. That's what we're not understanding, what it does to us. That's why C.S. Lewis talks about how sin dehumanizes it. There's nothing left. I was just teaching Dante to my students, Dante's Inferno. And people are like, well, wait a minute. Why, why? Why is Dante supposed to harden his heart against the sinners? Doesn't the Bible tell us to love the sin, but hate to love the sinner, but hate the sin? And it's like, well, yeah, but in hell there is no longer any sinner. The sinner has become, and we give our way to injustice that we 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 in a sense lose our humanity. Mm-hmm. We are just the sin going on forever. Again, mm-hmm. we need to look at this in terms of eternity. And what it is doing to us? Again, Lewis talks about you know every choice we make, we're moving more towards the person God created us to be, or moving more away from that. Either opening up and becoming more than ourselves, or getting tied up in knots until there is nothing left. Until Mm. we go down, 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 and maybe we end up as a dumb fish or something like that. Mm. Uh,
1: Or or believe in reincarnation. Or Gollum from Lord of the Rings, right? That oh, was he, even better example. he was good. Very good. he was yeah, yeah, he was Smeagol, You know, a nice, fat, plump Hobbit or whatever. Right. And then because he gave him, because he put his eyes on lower things on the ring, gave himself right. over to that, <laughs> he becomes a, a shadow of a person. He becomes a little monstrous creature. And there's one. Yeah, go ahead.
2: What one of the things that Boethius does for us in consolation? is he takes a myth that he doesn't believe in, but the famous myth, most people know this, when uh, 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 Odysseus goes to the island of Circe, and Circe turns his men into pigs, into mm-hmm. swine. Now, he doesn't believe that literally, but he extracts from it a truth, right? That, again, we we can make pigs of ourselves. Mm-hmm. And, and, and uh, basically, Circe represents the world, right? And when we Drink of the worldly brew, we come become worldly and, and brutish. But uh, uh, Odysseus has the antidote called moly, the holy moly, Batman. The moly that Hermes gives to him, and with focusing on knowledge, he's able to take the world and use it to ascend up the ladder. Right? He's looking for a deeper meaning. Now, there's a little danger in there because that's what liberal Christians do. Oh, I don't really believe in the resurrection. I'll just come up with a kernel of truth. We have to be careful, okay? There's the difference between the Bible and Greek mythology. Greek mythology is general revelation from which we can extract a meaning, whereas the Bible is special revelation. It is God's inspired words, directly inspired word. But again, we can can learn a truth. So I can read Greek mythology and learn a truth from it that will apply to my Christian life without having to accept the strange, fantastical elements of it. Mm -hmm. And that's what my book, The myth made Fact, is probably about.
1: So let's get into, as we uh, uh, begin to wind down, (laughs) and perhaps this could be its own episode, but um, uh, towards the end, there's a discussion in Consolation of Philosophy about predestination, free will, foreknowledge, and Boethius wrestling uh, with that. And how do all those a, work together?
2: Yeah. This is one of my favorite parts, and Lewis refers C. S. Lewis refers to it, not Lewis and Lou, but C.S. Lewis <laughs> refers to it many times in his writing. Okay, look, with very few exceptions, all Christians know that God knows the future. There are those strange openness theology dudes, but mm-hmm. almost everybody believes that God knows the future. Well, if God knows the future. Doesn't that necessarily mean he predestines everything? And Boethius says no. And Boethius is getting a little bit from Augustine, though he's still – he's channeling Augustine, but he's using general revelation Uh, because, remember, he knows the Christian stuff. So he has a measure for what to choose. That's basically the good part of that. Okay, so we often say that God foreknows the future. Actually, God does not foreknow anything. God does not foreknow. God God is not trapped in pre- past, yeah. present, and future. God is not in time. God is in eternity. And eternity is like a perpetual now. In fact, the point at which time touches eternity is in the moment. That moment when you feel like you've lived your entire life in the moment, that's an intimation of eternity, <clears throat> which is outside private space. Okay, so God does not foreknow the future God knows the future. He knows the future the way we know the present. Well, just because, okay, so if I see you doing something in the present, that doesn't necessarily mean I am making you mm. do it. Well, when God sees a, something in the future, that is a now for him. Mm. Now, again, God could be causing it. Okay, but what we're saying is they're not mutually exclusive. God can foreknow the future without forcing everything to happen and taking away any kind of free will, volition, whatever you want to call it. So it's the the old analogy is uh, if you're on the ground at the whatever Thanksgiving Macy's Day parade, you're on the ground and you watch the floats go by one after another. But if you're in a helicopter watching it, you're seeing everything that's going on right now. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean you're causing it. It just means you have a, a higher vision. So again, we we forget. See, so many people think that eternity means time going on forever. Eternity is not time going on forever. It's no time. It is eternity. It is above, outside time, a perpetual present, whatever you want to call it. <clears throat> that, that, that's a mystery. Uh, and again, Augustine talks about it as well. But Boethius finds ways of saying that. Just by studying the general revelation of the Greeks and Romans. Mm.
0: Wow. Mm. Well, I'm sure you've been toe to toe with some people that would disagree. With oh that, yeah, yeah. Which I mean, I'm in agreement with that myself personally, but um, you had a lot of strong, good brothers in Christ and sisters who would, um, you know, vehemently disagree with that.
2: So, and it's it's you know, Lewis talks about it this way. He's C.S. Chan- Lewis is channeling Aristotle, right? It seems pretty clear that God gives us choice and will. He always uses if-then statements. Well, God can't give us free will and not give it to us at the same time. That's called the law of non-contradiction. So we are, but again, we're moral, volitional beings. That doesn't mean we can do anything we want. We don't have crazy existential ultimate freedom. But it means that our choices have consequences and they mean something. We are not just puppets on a string, that God respects who we are. And look, if the Bible is right in telling us we're made in God's image, whatever it means to be made in God's image, if it does not include freedom, then we're really not made in God's image. Mm. Lewis speaks that way too. Well,
1: Martin Luther, I believe, in his Bondage of the Will, um, outlined that when it it comes to uh, higher choices, our will is bound. And um, like if I'm going to choose God, if I'm going to choose to be born again or have a relationship with God, that that, that I can't choose; that God has to choose choose me. But when it comes to lower choices, Lewis would say, or Luther would say, like what what pair of socks to wear or w- what job to do, then that's more of a, up to me. My will is is freer to do that.
2: And I mean, what what Lewis would say, and and again, we have to remember, you know, sometimes Calvinists like to call people Arminians and say they're a heretic. Arminius Mm -hmm. was not a heretic, okay? Never declared a heretic. Pelagius was a heretic. Mm -hmm. He's the one that argued for works righteousness. The the difference between Calvin and Arminius and and Lewis would be like Arminius is all believing Christians believe in prevenient grace. In other words, that God has to open our heart, that there is a grace that precedes grace, The Catholics believe that. Everybody believes that. But what a lot of Christians don't believe, I, I would agree with this on Lewis, we don't believe in irresistible grace. In other words, we can say no. Mm-hmm. We 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 cannot save ourselves. We, we can't even open, we can't even wake up ourselves, right? So God has to give us grace before grace to open us up. But the big question is, can we say no? The, the more doctrinaire mm-hmm. Calvinists would often say no, we cannot say no. Mm-hmm. By the way, I don't know if you know this, but... John Milton in Paradise Lost has a very unique answer, and I've never heard anybody else say this. He says that God has predestined certain people to be saved, and they have no choice, and everybody else has a choice. I don't know where Milton came up with that. It's a wild idea, but I think it's kind of cool. Um, But again, (laughs) it is important that even Arminius believed in preventing grace and that grace comes from God and cannot be earned.
0: Yeah, I remember one time I was speaking at a Christian high school in Kansas City, Missouri, <clears throat> and a, a student from another country said, man, he really wants to get back to his country and share the gospel with his countrymen because he has a desire for them to want to know Christ, which is great. And he asked me my thoughts about that, and, and I immediately, Romans chapter one jumped in my mind. And I said, you know, it's great that God has placed this sense of urgency in you to go back to your home country and share the gospel, but I believe that in Romans one, where Paul writes about everybody can know God if they just look at creation. And if there is some remote little bitty part on this planet where the gospel hasn't gone, but there was at least one person there that believed and worshiped the God that created everything they see, including themselves that I believe that they would get into heaven. Well, later on after the class that when we went to, I went to meet the principal, the teacher followed us down there and he basically like, read me the riot act, you know, and told me that's not true because he, I can't remember the scripture verses, but you know, how could they hear unless there be a preacher? And, oh, right. and I'm like, I, you know, at that point in time, I, it wasn't the right time and place for us to have that conversation, but he would just roll in like three or four verses off at me like a machine gun. It was just like, I need to be better prepared. Next you time. know, you know,
2: what's funny. The, the answer comes in something that we already mentioned earlier today in Romans. It says, How can they know if they have not heard, right? Mm -hmm. And then Paul says they have heard for the his his voice has gone out to all the world. Now I wonder if you ever looked up that verse, because Mm -hmm. it comes from the general revel relevant general revelation, Psalm 19, C.S. Lewis's Mm -hmm. favorite psalm. They're telling the glory of the Lord, the skies are Mm -hmm. proclaiming his handiwork, day after day day, day, they they pour forth speech. Night after night they pour forth knowledge. Their voice has gone out to all the world, okay? So it's actually a reference to... Now, what's great about Psalm 19 is the the first half of Psalm 19 is general revelation. The heavens are telling the glory of God. For God is Elohim. It's the generic word for God, like our word God. But the second half suddenly changes to Yahweh, God's covenant name, I am that I am. And then it's talking about the law or special revelation. So the first half... Mm -hmm of 19 is general revelation using god's generic name the Mm -hmm. second half is special generation special revelation the law using yahweh Mm -hmm. i am that i am Mm -hmm. it kind of shows it there together look none of us really know c.s lewis has wondered (laughs) i've wondered this is what i hope is true someone that has truly sought after god but the gospel never came to them on the moment of their death christ appears to them and if everything in their life is leading up to that They will accept him. Now, I know that borders on what's called uh, 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 post-mortem salvation. And Christians don't believe that. We believe once you die, all bets are off. But Lewis reminds us that the moment of our death is an eternal moment. The moment we die, we're stepping into an eternal moment that contains every moment, every choice, everything of our life. Now, that's not universal salvation because the whole point is Christ appears to you. And if everything in your life is leading to that— you will kneel down in obedience to him and recognize him. Right? Mm. Uh, the, the problem with hell is the people in hell don't want to go to heaven because they don't want to be with God for mm. eternity, right? They don't want God, they, they want their sin, they want themselves, mm. and they have nothing to do with God. Uh, and that will often be the Pharisees, the religious people mm. who really don't love God. They just love whatever it is that they love their self righteousness. But are they truly seeking eternity? With the triune God. So we don't know these mysteries, right? Yep. I yep. hope this is true. <laughs> yeah. But at yeah. the end of the last battle, Lewis deals with that. Yeah. I appreciate
0: you saying that, you know, because I think a lot of times it's in a few circles I may run in, <clears throat> I'm always challenged by a myself, sometimes thinking I know more than I really do. But then around other people that I can say, yeah, they probably definitely think they know more than really do. So for a person like you who clearly, you know, knows the word of God and and like in a in a way that not many do for you to humbly say, hey, I think this is right. You know what I mean? I hope that this is it. You know, this one no. part that you mentioned, like I, I like that, you know, it's not it doesn't come from arrogance, it doesn't mm-hmm. come from pride. It comes from a man. I love the Lord. I love his word and I'm studying it and I'm in it. And I'm in the thick of things. And this one little part, this is what my hope is, because that's showing your heart for people. And if it right. is true, that's showing God's heart for his creation, because we believe, I always go back to John 3, 16. If John 16 is really true, where God doesn't want anybody to perish, but I'll have everlasting life. It right. can't be what this one group of people say is where it's
2: just so hard
0: and fast and cut and dry. Cause it, you know, to me, it goes I, against I just that. saw a,
2: a really, just saw a really funny meme on Facebook It said, if you want to go to seminary but you can't afford it, just disagree with the Calvinist and it'll give you a free three hour Bible lecture. Oh wow. I've experienced that several times before, so I can
0: feel that. I could I could not the not the forwarding part, but the second part. I've definitely felt that more than a handful of times. Well man, hey, this has been great. I mean, this really is, Brother Lou. Hey, let me um, me
2: end with one thing here, because I I, I just thought about this. This might help your listeners. If you want to place Boethius, okay, Mm -hmm. the Consolation of Philosophy is written by a Christian, but he's writing in a pre-Christian mode, and he only allows himself the general revelation of the virtuous pagan. Okay, there are other books like that. Many of you have read Beowulf. Beowulf was clearly written by a Christian monk, a believer, but he wrote Beowulf in a pre-Christian mode. So he only gives Beowulf a general revelation, consolation. He gives him a Viking funeral. He doesn't give him heaven, right? The Lord of the Rings is written by a very strong believing Christian named J.R.R. Tolkien, who wrote it not only in a a pre-Christian mode, but a pre-Jewish mode. So the Middle Earth is the Earth. You have to read his letters to to learn this. Middle Earth is the Earth, but it's written in a time before God even revealed himself to Abraham. Mm. Also, uh, Chaucer was a Christian who wrote Canterbury Tales, but he wrote something called The Knight's Tale. And The Knight's Tale takes place in a pagan world, all general revelation, but it points forward. One other book, C.S. Lewis wrote a book called Till We Have Faces. Mm. He was a christian but like boethius he wrote that in a pre-christian mode so they only have access to the wisdom of general revelation so there are other books that do this and you might want to, you know, give yourself a reading mm-hmm. list to read all of
0: them. You want yeah, to wow, fun. man, that's a great thing. I actually had to read *Beowulf* and uh, *Canterbury Tales* in high school; mm-hmm. was required reading. Mm-hmm. And I, I, mean, I was a heathen. I, ain't, I was high and proud and <laughs> read none of it. But I remember those titles, so I want to go back and check those out. So, man, thank you for sharing some of your time with us, Doctor Marcos. Man, it's been mm-hmm. very, very enlightening and, and very rich. And I, I'm sure that our listeners will really get a really get a kick out of it. So, um, and
1: where do you? Um where can people learn more about you?
2: The best way is just go to uh, Amazon.com and type in my name, Lewis Marcos M A R K O S. I've, I've got my uh, I've got my Amazon author page, and also if you go to YouTube and type in Lewis Marcos M A R K O S, you'll see my channel, and I've got a lot of videos up there, and uh, that's probably the best way to Great. get a hold of me.
0: Cool. Yeah. So y'all heard that, man. Check that out. Look this brother up, man. Get drop a get a book from him. Check out some videos. Mm-hmm. I I'm definitely gonna check some more stuff out. I man, I I just I feel like I love to kick it with you, like at least once a week, you know, because you got such a cool personality <laughs> that that I like kicking with people like that. So, man, thank you for that. Sam, any any last thing you wanna leave our listeners with?
1: Nope. I'm good.
0: Yeah, I, I don't have nothing either, man. Like both of us are men of words, but yeah. man, this this been very great. Good. This has been very good. So thank you so much for y'all listening, man. Hope you were blessed by this. Mm-hmm. Man, go check out our brother, um, Dr. Lewis Marcos. Um, on YouTube, go to Amazon, check out his different books, man, pick some up, watch some videos. and uh, if you if you got some out of this, you thought, man, this is so good. Like pray and say, Lord, who can I share this with? Mm-hmm. You can find us on Spotify. You can find us on Apple Podcasts. Mm-hmm. You can also go on YouTube to our channel, and you can actually visually see. Um, this podcast that we had today and uh, man, let people know, man, we trying to do some things out here to educate some people on on some bumper sticker topics. That's mm-hmm. really like scripture, but people taking it out of context or we're kind of highlighting some old folks like Boethius, who I never heard of before <laughs> and how relevant a writing that's, you know, Hundreds, thousands of years old to be relevant for us today to consider to help not only solidify our faith in Christ even more and growing that, but also to maybe introduce some others um, to Christ in a way that they haven't been introduced to Him before. So, thank you guys so much. Um, check us out. Drop us a line on of faith at gmail.com. Until next week, don't go no stepping in. No BS. Peace.